Well, good morning, everybody. Everybody doing well? Awesome. We're going to jump right in, uh, but just as we did last week, the, the scriptures are going to be located in your Bible. It's an amazing thing. They're there, so just uh, open it up. You can look on your phone if you need to look on your phone. You can peek off your neighbor if you want to peek off your neighbor. That's fine. But we're going to jump in. In the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul uh, tells the church, uh, you, you, most of you know this, to put on the full armor of God. And then he gives a, a so that, and I love those statements in the Bible, right? He says, so that, that you would be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Isn't that a fun one, right? So some sort of strange battle that's going on here, but you're supposed to put on the full armor of God. And although the schemes of the devil are multifaceted, this is very true, and the schemes of the devil are especially deadly, 1 Peter 5, 8 tells us that uh, the devil is prowling around seeking whom he may devour. Um, Paul gives, with respect to putting on the armor of God, he, he gives us a very specific context, okay, a very specific context. And so I want to, before, before we jump fully in, I want to I kind of speak my piece a little bit about this. Um, the Bible is written by people. God is, of course, inspiring that. And we've got to understand maybe in a more deep way what that actually means. But, uh, but the scripture is written by people, okay? And as the scripture is being written by people and God is talking to them, people mean things, okay? They mean things, and the meaning of those things is embedded deeply within the context of something, okay? And so when we, when we read something, we go, okay, well, what is the author actually getting at? And so, so after we understand what he's getting at, then we can apply that, we can work to apply that to our lives. The challenge is that we live in a culture that thinks the Bible means anything they want it to mean. And I'm not talking about the secular culture, I'm talking about the church culture. One of the worst questions that has ever been asked, and it's been apparently in the, uh, in the small group 101 study kit for everybody, is what does this mean to you? Have you ever heard that? What does this passage mean to you? Here's, here's Nathan being Nathan. I don't care what it means to you. As a matter of fact, I don't even care what the passage means to me. I care what the passage means. Do you know what the difference is? Right? So what happens in passages such as the armor of God is that we develop all kinds of meanings and then those meanings get passed down to us from our parents or from our grandparents and then we pass them down to other people and then the second somebody comes in and challenges your preconceived idea, you know what your natural reaction is? Can't be. It can't be that. You're wrong. You're misguiding me. You're teaching me a false gospel. This is common. Okay, and so people panic about this stuff because all of a sudden their uh, their upbringing, their heritage, is being dismantled a bit. And I think that this is exactly what happens within the armor of God. Again, don't get me wrong; the devil's schemes are multifaceted. They are especially deadly. But Paul means something when he offers us this particular view of an armor. So today. The message is titled, Armor for Unity. 
And I want you to be walking through this with me. So I want to set the stage a bit on the book of Ephesians. One of the more notable aspects of Ephesians is what we see in chapter 1 and the sheer amount of times that Paul uses the phrase in him or in Christ or in Jesus. Uh, it's 12 or more, depending on how you want to see them, but, but I'm talking about the, the idea that something has been done, salvation is done in Jesus, or, or uh, righteousness is found in Jesus, something like that, right? Within this chapter, Paul encourages the saints about their place in Christ. That's what Paul is doing. He writes to them and says, by the way, you are in Christ, and that's a good place to be. Okay, In chapter 2, Paul reminds the people who they once were, but he doesn't do so to condemn them. He doesn't do so to, to make sure that he can kind of pull this kind of covert contract where uh, later on, if they sidestep, he can go, see, you heathen, right? He, that's not what he's going for. He just wants them to be reminded of where they came from. And, and this is where it gets true in the church today. I can say, I am a sinner but I need to finish the statement, okay? I need to say that I'm a sinner saved by grace. I need to say that I am a sinner or uh, that I, I once was an old man and now I'm a new man. I mean, literally, I'm getting to be an old man. But, you know, I once was an old man and now I have put on this new man. There's something alive in me. And so there's, there's this idea Right? So Paul reminds the people of what they once were, but more importantly, he tells them of who they have become because of the rich mercy of Jesus Christ. It's within that encouraging context that Paul actually asserts that we are a product of grace alone. Okay, of grace alone. Much has been made of Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. Here's what it says. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. A proper understanding of Ephesians 2.8 is Paul's, with Paul's wording notwithstanding, right? We can put that aside just for a second. The context reveals that his intention was to remind a redeemed people that both Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, are all products of grace. That's what his point in Ephesians 2.8 is. Paul is therefore not, and those of you who know the argument that I'm referring to, you will, you will understand what I'm saying. Paul is not making some obscure doctrinal statement that man is not capable of responding in faith to God unless God enables him to do so. That is people who are too, uh, too bent on feeding their agenda into the text of Scripture to read it in its context and to read the proper understanding of it. God has saved us by grace, and he expects you to respond in trusting him. He expects you to respond. The gift given to every one of mankind, all people, is saving grace, and all mankind is responsible to respond in faith. And guess what Paul is writing to the Ephesians? You did just that. You did just that. You're saved by grace through faith, uh, and, and that was a work of God. Grace is a work of God, and it's a beautiful thing. So Paul wraps up the chapter by reminding his readers that God has undertaken a building project, which we're back to these strange metaphors in the scripture. The construction of a holy temple, which is actually a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. This building is made up of diverse people. 
you are all bricks in the wall, as Pink Floyd might say, right? All of which are designed, I love the laughter because it reveals the age of this church. It's absolutely amazing. Anyway, uh, you, you are all part of this as a diverse group of people, uh, and we are called as a diverse group of people, to live in unity. And all that Paul has been saying up to this point is the same message. You are a new creation and you're to live in unity. Chapter 3 promotes the theme, uh, the same theme as Paul declares that Gentiles are now fellow heirs and fellow members of the body of Christ. But what does that mean, fellow heirs and members of the body of Christ? It means that they are partakers of the promise. Now that's a huge step for these people to hear, right? They are partakers of the promise, but one way, <clears throat> and one way only, in Christ Jesus. The same way for all of us. All of us. Paul concludes that chapter with, uh, with understandable praise to God for such an amazing accomplishment. Praise be to God, right? This is how Paul does it. In chapter 4, Paul draws on everything that he said before this point, to implore the people to live and uh, preserve the unity that God has established. And this is God's aim, and it always will be, that we be united. I'm always fascinated by what the psalmist declares in Psalm 133, 1-3. He says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. How good and pleasing is it? How amazing is it? The next ideas come. It, it's as amazing as the anointing of Aaron. It's, amaz it's as amazing as the, the establishment of Mount Zion and the commanded blessing that comes life forever. Here's what he says. Behold, how good and ple pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. And in Ephesus, in this region, and to whoever this letter is actually uh, sent to, they are hearing that they have been grafted into that promise, life forever. Midway through that chapter, Paul uh, calls on the saints to walk in a manner fitting of this new life, a life unified with all those who call on the name of Jesus. I was talking to Gary Bolander earlier this morning, and he was uh, talking about a study that he's working through through Romans. And is fascinated about this transition that happens between Romans 7 and Romans 8, right? Romans 7, what a wretched man that I am. Romans 8, uh, and who can redeem me? Who can save me? And Romans 8, thanks be to Christ Jesus. Old man, new man. Old man, new man. Old way of living, possibility of a new way of living. It's very important for us to remember as a church that you are called to holiness and righteousness. You are called to follow after Jesus. As a matter of fact, Jesus commissions us to teach people to obey all that he commands. That's powerful, right? But that's the call. That's what he wants us to do. And so we're supposed to do all of that. And so as we're working through it, we are called to be this obedient people. Uh, he goes on in chapter 5 to call God's people to be imitators of God, imitators of God, to love as Christ loved. 
And upon examining the behavior listed, it's plain to see that all of those behaviors serve to get you saved. No. All of those behaviors serve to promote unity. From chapter 5 to chapter 6, we enter what theologians and scholars call the household codes. And although they should be, and we have studied them at length, their purpose is the same. This message is to promote unity. The instruction Paul gives for everyone to submit to everyone, specifically in certain ways at times, it's about maintaining the unity that God has created. So this overarching theme in Ephesians uh, establishes an undeniable context which must be followed with what comes next. So let's look at the armor of God with fresh eyes, with a clear understanding of what the entire letter has been saying, with no deviation, guys except for what we might call Paul's run-on sentences, right? But no deviation, just laser-focused on being united. Let's look at what the armor of God is actually supposed to be. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, It should start bells going off in your head for what Paul is getting at with this. But against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, with all that we've understood, what do we see in these verses? Do you see some spiritual ADD moment in which Paul randomly instructs the churches to engage in some sort of Frank Peretti fantastical spiritual warfare? If you do, you are reading it because you want to. It's not there. It's never been there. You don't get to close your eyes and go into some Lord of the Rings moment where you're fighting dead people. It's not there within a context of unity and a call to preserve it. What might the devil's schemes be? Division, disunity, divide and conquer. Within the context, within that context, what would our battle not being against flesh and blood mean? It means we stop taking aim at each other in a disunifying way, in a divisive way. Guys, this is a message the church has so screwed up and gotten so far away from that we're all sitting here pretending like we're in a spiritual battle. You are. I don't mind the idea. But you're pretending you're in a spiritual battle looking for a devil behind every bush when Paul meant, stop fighting with that guy. He loves me and you love me. So how about we walk like you love me? How about we do it together? It's amazing, right? But no, but no, the second you start challenging these kinds of strange, odd beliefs, people are like, you don't think the devil attacks in a spiritual way? Of course I do. Of course I do. But he attacks and manifests that attack in very real ways. And those very real ways tear the church apart. Those very real ways make everybody confused about what this means because somebody Grandpa Joe somewhere read into this text some odd idea because he was feeling all kind of spiritual one day and he missed the context. And because of that, 
We're sitting here fighting over each other, but when we go home, we're like, Lord, give me proper weapons so I can slay the enemy. Stop. Stop. Jesus will slay the enemy. I promise you, he will slay the enemy. You've been given a a fascinating instruction, and we'll get to that at the end, about what you're supposed to do with the devil and his schemes. Now, a brief side note here. Does this mean, because our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities of this world, our battle is not against the people that are right next to us because we love them and we're serving Jesus together, not Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, but our battle is against the spiritual forces of this world that are causing disunity. Does that mean... That we are not to blame people for their hurtful actions? Does it mean that people don't actually know what they're up to, but rather are simply puppets for the devil and his schemes? No. Consider these two passages. Luke 23, 34. But Jesus was saying, mind, mind you, Jesus is hanging on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Since I was a little kid, I was like, no, they know what they're doing. (laughs) I'm positive they know what they're doing. Jews and Gentiles alike, you don't pick up a sword, drive it through a man's wrist, and go, didn't know what I was doing. You know full well what you're doing. What is meant here? Not that they don't know what they're doing. They crucified the Lord of glory. What they didn't understand was that they crucified the Lord of glory. That is what they don't understand. Look at what Proverbs 4.19 says. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. So are wicked people just clueless? They're just like, oops, did some evil things. No, they plot and they scheme and they devise plans to hurt and to affect other people. This is always the case. And there is a responsibility that must be paid for this. But the issue is, the Bible is speaking to the fact that they don't understand that the things they do have lasting effects. They hurt the people around them. They hurt others. You burn bridges. You won't have anything left if you keep doing this stuff. This is the meaning of it. But people know what they're doing, right? The point is that as a body of believers, we are, we are not at war with one another. Amen? We're not. There is a real enemy that is trying to divide us, and we are to take responsibility for our actions. And we are to humbly forgive those who mistreat us when that happens. Forgive our brother 70 times 7, right? We are not to condemn people. And yet the scripture says, contrary to people's stupid interpretations of the Bible again, we are to judge rightly. We're not to judge flippantly. We're not to be um, poor judges of things, but we're to judge rightly. And with what aim? The aim is restoration and the aim is unity. So look at what it says in Matthew 18 when we talk about church discipline. Obviously, because there's church discipline, people are held to account for their actions, right? You do something stupid, you should be slapped on the hand. That sounds fun and very Catholic. But anyway, so, right? so, so we, should, we should correct people for their, for their uh, missteps, for their sins, whatever it is. But what is Matthew 18 repeat three different times? It tells us, if, you, if they listen, you've won your brother. The goal is to win your brother, The goal is restoration. The goal is never to go, you're a heathen and a piece of junk, get out of the church. That's just not the aim. 
And it would be awesome if we actually understood it. So, are we responsible for our actions? Yes. Is our battle against the person who acted poorly to us? Our battle is not against them. It's flesh and blood. Our battle is against something bigger. And guess what the devil uses as one of the greatest divisive tools? For you to correct a brother or a sister, and for that brother or sister to not listen to you, and then you guys have a wedge driven between you, and then all of a sudden they go to another church, and you go to another church, and there's chaos between you two. It's division. And the devil goes, scheme worked. Scheme worked. And why did the scheme work? Because you and I thought our battle was against a person. You can hold people responsible. Just remember, your battle is not against them. So the devil is trying to divide, and we have to stand against it. So what do we do? We put on armor. Let's look at that. Ephesians 6, verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God. I love this. You're going to need every piece of this, just so you know. So that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. You've done everything. You have resisted in the evil day. And what do you do? You stand firm. What's the context of Ephesians? Unity. What are you standing firm in? Some really weird spiritual battle where you think the devil is talking to you at night. No, stop. It's not there. It's not there, okay? So be careful with the way you want to read things just because you darn it, you want to read them that way. We have got real issues when we, when we look at the Bible and realize Paul meant something. He didn't randomly mean something else, okay? Unless he goes later and tells you. Hey, I meant this. Okay? So please understand that. So Ephesians 6, 14 through 17. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Of what? Of peace. There's a point in that. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I'm going to offer some observations as to these particular pieces of armor, or the armor imagery. And then we're going to tie it all back in with the context. So the first thing, let's look at loins, truth, and the sword of the Spirit. We're not going to look at loins right now. But anyway, you get my point, right? So according to this image, truth is what? If you've got to gird your loins with something, what is truth? Truth would be a belt, right? So according to the image, truth is a belt with which we, we gird up our loins. But what in the heck does that mean? Gird up your loins. Is it tenderloin? What are we doing here, right? First, girding your loins is simply to prepare yourself for something challenging or difficult. That's it. That's what it means. In an ancient context, if you girded your loins, you were ready to fight, you were ready to run, you were ready to take things, right? So what do you gird that up with? You do it with truth. In this case, preserving unity and the schemes of the devil are the thing you're preparing against. Do you know why you're going to need truth in that? Because schemes are hard to spot sometimes, unless you are well-trained in the truth. Second... 
So first, girding up your loins is to prepare yourself for something challenging, right? Second, we are preparing for this battle by girding ourselves with, again, truth. That truth is always to be delivered in love. Don't miss that. Okay, But love doesn't mean accepting sin. It doesn't mean holding people accountable. It just means that our ultimate aim, again, is restoration and unity. Okay, We're wielding things from a place of truth. Third, from what location on the body or on armor do warriors generally draw their sword from? From their belt. Now, this is a really important idea, and I hope you will hear it. You and I can speak God's word. By the way, that's the sword of the Spirit, right? The word of God. We can speak the word of God from a place of truth or not from a place of truth. We can speak it from a place of truth or from a place of manipulation. And you all have experienced this, right? We can do it. We all do it. Uh, We've all had it done to us. So don't fool yourselves into thinking that just because you quote a Bible verse, you're automatically speaking the truth and in love, uh, speaking the truth in love. You need to look at your heart and you need to ask the question, what is my agenda? What is my motivation? I see this all the time. People love to meld Bible verses into their politics, right? The truth will set you free. Yes, it's not about America, okay? Stop. It's not about America. None, and actually, this is a real hard thing to hear. Nothing in the Bible is about America. Smile. What the Bible is about is you and how you look like Jesus in the midst of whatever you deal with. And that's a hard thing for us to understand. Because what we want is we want to turn every Bible passage into a reason why we beat a Democrat over the head. Or we beat a Republican over the head. Guess what? You're wrong in doing so. Stop it. But I'll tell you what gospel is alive and well in the American church today. It's the gospel of American politics. If you start a church, I would challenge anybody in this room to do a social experiment. And I'll find a way. We can work a way to fund it. It won't take long. You start a church and all you do is say this church is for those people who don't want to be pushed around by the government anymore and want to hear about these particular political things. Guess what you'll do? You'll grow the fastest megachurch in this whole entire world. You will because cults grow quickly. You're like, oh, Nathan's really getting at it here, right? Cults grow real quick. The gospel of American politics, the gospel of of right wing, the gospel of left wing, the gospel of all these things, that's what people love. They love this stuff. And that church will grow so fast, but it is nonsense. Use your Bible in its right context for its right purpose. People love to use it for that. They love to use it for self-justification. Well, the Bible says that we're just people of faith. That means I don't have to obey Jesus. You're all so stupid. Sorry. Just going to shoot straight with you because no other person will. You are not called to just live by faith and not obey Jesus. Why? Because the same scripture says faith without works is dead. The same scripture says that your faith must have feet or it's not anything. And we're like, well, I don't know. I think you're trying to make me earn my salvation. No, I'm trying to tell you that you don't look like a son or a daughter of King Jesus. That's what I'm trying to tell you. 
I love it. Bob's like, get him. Anyway, <laughs> it's so good. The devil did this exact thing with Jesus. He wields the sword, not from a place of truth. In the wilderness for 40 days. The devil quotes scripture correctly, but he wasn't using it in a way that would promote truth. He used it to deny its truth. Be careful. He used it in a way for Jesus to deny its truth, and it's not going to happen. Be careful with how you use the weapon you've been given, right? Make sure that they are always drawn, your sword is always drawn from a place of truth. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6, and and, uh, Hebrews 4, 12 are going to give us some real good ideas as to what that sword should actually be used for. And by the way, it's not poking the devil in the eye. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare, what weapon have we talked about so far? Sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. There it is, Nathan. We're going to take on some spiritual forces. Calm down and listen to me. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. This is where lack of truth comes in. And guess what you're using the Word of God for? By the way, it's a book of words. You're using it as arguments against stupid ideas right? You raise up against the, the, these ideas that raise up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now you're fighting even within. Got to get this right. Got to get this right. And we are ready to punish all disobedience. Accountability is clearly there, okay? Whenever your disobedience is complete. So Paul is writing, of course, to a people, right? Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. So go attack evil spirits. It's not what it says. It's your soul and your spirit of both joints and marrow and is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. You know what you use the word of God for? You find out whether somebody's believing a scheme. You find out whether or not they're believing a truth. You find out how far they want to drift to this way or to that way. And you call them back. You call them back. Please understand something about uh, our battle against the devil. The scripture is very clear. James 4, 7 says, submit therefore to God. Here's your action step. Also, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Submit, therefore, to God and chase after the devil with your flaming spiritual sword. No. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. If you submit to God and if you resist the devil, who is on the aggression if you're resisting? He is. And you resist. You push back. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Who's on the pursuit? The devil, right? Seeking someone to devour, but smack him in the head with the Bible. In a manner of speaking, maybe. But the point is, resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Church, when we look at what we're actually called to do, very different than the kind of fanciful novels that we've been force-fed to read. This is not what this is. 
I know some are going to say, Nathan, but you don't know. My experience is I've, I've encountered this. I don't deny that you've encountered that. I have encountered things that I do not like. But my goal, resist. My goal, stand firm. But the armor of God, the armor of God is for us to protect against the disunity that the devil is sowing and bringing on us. Number two is the breastplate of righteousness and a combination with Isaiah 59 and 60. Something that requires a whole series of messages is this parallel between the armor of God and quite literally the armor that God puts on himself in Isaiah 59 59 and 60. I'll just say for now that the battle hasn't changed since the time of Isaiah and the aim of God is to save people just as it was then. Paul is a fast... Connect, makes a fascinating connection of ideas. He seems to be showing us that we are the church, we are the body of Christ, and we are actually putting on the very armor that God established himself to put on back in Isaiah, which is just a beautiful truth. You should read that for yourselves, Isaiah 59 and Isaiah 60. Number three is the shield of faith and the enemy's darts. Again, who's shooting at who? The enemy's shooting at us. And what do we protect against the darts with? Uh, protect, protect against the darts from, or with, yeah, with. What are we using? A shield. A shield of what? A shield of faith. And this is so good. And wrong answer on the front row. I'm just teasing you. I'm, just teasing. I'm teasing you completely. It was awesome. I'm going to start doing that when I ask the questions. If you get it wrong, I'm just going to call it out like that. It'll be a lot of fun. It'll be a lot of fun. And we'll only have one person left in the church after that. So anyway. The shield of faith. And faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So you protect against the schemes of the devil and the fiery darts by remembering what Jesus said, not what the devil says. It's amazing. Like that guy over there, he's out to get you. That person in the church, they don't like you. Ah, unity is an unattainable goal. That's what the devil likes to do, okay? Please put this stuff within context so that you can understand it. I know that it's hard for people because you've read it wrong for so long or been taught it wrong for so long. You didn't even realize it had to do with unity. You didn't even realize it had to do with how much you love your brother or sister because Frank Beretti told you otherwise, which he's an awesome author, by the way. But anyway, just wrong. For the gospel shoes, number four. Uh, Isaiah 52, 7, our call to worship this morning. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Why do we put on the shoes of the gospel or uh, preparation of the gospel, shodding your feet? Why do we do this? Because we have a message. What are we attacking the world with? The gospel of King Jesus. Our God reigns, church. Our God reigns. That is our message. And so do the people that sit next to you in church, and so do the people that go to the church down the street. Our God reigns, if that God, of course, is King Jesus. Again, the goal of God has always been salvation, and we are to be ministers of that good news, bringing more and more and more into unity. We are simply being prepared to do it. Changing metaphors, side note here. This is really fun, and it'll probably speak to you, Dylan. This is really good. 1 Thessalonians 5.8, the same Apostle Paul, what's he do? 
Apparently, he screws up inspiration because he gets the thing wrong. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. Ah, You meant righteousness, right? Right, Paul? No, faith and love. He wants to mix the metaphor. He's allowed to do it. He's Paul, right? The breastplate of faith and love and the helmet, the hope of salvation. Cool, he keeps that one right. That's pretty good. Isaiah 11:5. Also, righteousness will be the belt around his loins for goodness sakes. Is righteousness a breastplate? Is it a belt? What is it? Doesn't matter, right? These are things to prepare you. Armor prepares you for war. You need righteousness, you need faith, you need truth, you need all of these things. So please don't get lost in those things. The Bible doesn't have to connect them all exactly. The point is still, you have to be ready. Finally, how does all of this text, uh, out of all, all of this context, apply to unity? When we understand the battle that we're actually in, when we understand it, it really does change how we interact with one another. Uh, it changes our strange views of spiritual matters um, by, honestly, by correcting them where they need to be corrected. It helps, us to, um, it helps us to look at other passages of Scripture with a critical eye and, and realize where we've maybe been taught wrong. But it is very important to our growth. Okay, church, it is very important to our growth. So let's look at this again. And I'm going to read it to the end of the chapter because I just think it's beautiful. In the context of unity, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God because it's going to protect you for unity's sake, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, division and divisiveness. For our struggle is not against the people right next to you. It's actually against the one who's trying to divide, but against rulers and against the powers and against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And do what? With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf. Unity, 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 unity. Do you hear it? That utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And he goes on and he talks about a, a, a minister named Tychicus and, and he says, Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with those who love our Lord Jesus with incorruptible love. Unity is such a big thing that God has actually given you armor to work it out. He's given you armor to work this out. He's given you truth from which you go to everything. He's given you a sword that, again, must be pulled from truth, but it is there for a purpose. And it is dividing soul and spirit. It's able to fine-tune these arguments and these things that have come up against God and so that you can push forward. 
and we can live in unity. He's given us a pair of shoes that make us prepared and ready that we are always delivering a gospel of what? Peace. A gospel of peace. It is either peace to the enemies of God as a, as a treatise, as, a, as an invitation to the family, or it is peace to one another remembering, you, buddy, were once a sinner, but you're saved by grace, and you're my friend and brother. That's a huge deal. And so you've been given all of this, and the enemies attacking left and right, and what do you have to defend? Faith. You have faith. And your faith is, should be unwavering. Your faith should say just what Jesus said. Ah, that's fine that you say that. Scripture says that. But God says, don't put him to the test. And you take it for what is true. And you fight back and you destroy these lofty ideas. So whether the devil outright lies to you or he manipulates and he tries to divide the church, we stand firm with armor to protect against it. Does that make sense to you guys? So as you read Ephesians, remember the unity message that's in it. And as you get to the armor of God, you can calm down with your hyper-spiritual things. Not suggesting it's not real, the spiritual world. Not at all. But I want you to see what Paul meant when he wrote it. I want you to see what he's aiming at when he wrote it. It's for us to be together. It's for us to show the world that we love each other. And by that, we are truly his disciples. Amen.